And now, I am IU Radio Magazine brings you Pride Out Loud, Episode 1, and so it begins. The captive is the Broadway stage, of feats in Cadman's all rage, and the well of loneliness appears on the stands. Depression, red lines, crystal night, Adolf shows Olympic mind, put on your pink triangles and put up your hands. A-bomb, 50s keen, the Kinsey shake, the cock to see, James Dean, Madison, Doris Day, and Harry Hay. Picks a fight, J. Edgar, I go shame on you But I'll see a planet too Steve Jorgensen's reborn daughters Are polite as four Ginsburg, Nicky Lush, Giovanni's room Marilyn, the beatnik scene Jackie's in her Cassini Vatican too And something's coming soon As the only exclusively queer show broadcast on KPFK, I Am Are You has presented an LGBT day at the station since the 70s. The last one in 2018 even included a historic live performance from the Trans Chorus. This year the producer's role has been handed over to a more mainstream straight-focused show. But no worries, while we're no longer involved in celebrating our story of pride via this one special day, we celebrate pride on our program every week. And that means for the next five weeks we'll be looking at where we've been, to get a handle on where we're going. In the words of Margot Channing, Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hi there. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. I'm Steve Pride. I'm Angelica Beetle. I'm Abby Dees. I'm Vosh Bodie. And I'm Scooter J. Stevens. And so it begins. Come out, come out, wherever you are, and meet the young lady who fell from a star. We travel in our gayback machine to a 1983 Vito Russo conversation with Harry Hay. That portals us back even further to the very beginnings of the homophile movement. Thirty-three years ago, Harry Hay and a few other people got together and began to form the nucleus of an organization which would eventually become the Mattachine Society, probably the oldest gay activist organization in America in the post-war years. And I want to start out first by talking a little bit about the sense I have that most lesbians and gay men in America today have no idea, they haven't got the vaguest idea what it took to get them to a place in their lives where they now take for granted some of the things that only a decade ago or a little longer than that were unheard of. And first of all, what was it like for you personally to be gay in the 1940s? And what do you think the catalyst was in your life that made you an organizer? That made you, put you, had to give you the courage to get out there at a time when even the word homosexuality wasn't spoken out loud? Well. I had been being an organizer almost against my will. I was really an educational director. In the early 30s, I had begun organizing migratory farm workers, for example, in 1933 and 1934. And my whole feeling was that I wanted to be involved with helping people better their lives and find ways and means by which they could become people in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I had been working myself as a migratory worker in the hayfields in the summertime since 1925, 1926 so that in 1932 and 33, when there wasn't any money, when there wasn't any funds, and people had to come together in order to cooperate, in order to survive, I find myself thinking this is what I wanted to do. 
And always I believed, because I've been believing this, I guess, since I was about 13 or 14, that I would help other people. And someday, when it came time for me to find out who I was and to tell other people how beautiful it was to be what we called then a temperamental man, not we didn't have the word gay then, I felt that they would help me. And it wouldn't be until the late 40s, it wouldn't be until just about the time of the war years and just after, that I suddenly began to realize they were not going to help me, and I was going to have to do it on my own. But I also could say to the hetero world, well, thank you very much, I have learned a lot of how to organize and how to reach people. You have taught me what it means to live as an outlaw in your society legally, when I had been an outlaw sexually all my life anyway. So to move from the legal position of outlaw to a position of outlaw sexuality on an open basis mm -hmm. was just not that much of a step. I just simply thought, well, now it's time for me to organize my people. We're being thrown out of the State Department. We are probably going to be the new scapegoats in the new police world that seems to be coming up as a result of the Smith Act and the Munt-Nixon Bill and things like that had passed in 1948 and 49. And I felt, now we are going to be the new scapegoats and we've got to organize. We've got to find out who we are before we get clobbered. Did you meet a lot of resistance from other gay people? I mean, here you were totally. with an idea and you went to other gay men and even lesbians and said, we've got to organize. What did they say? Well, you can read in Jonathan Katz what happened in the thing. I got an idea in 1948, and for two years I ran around looking for my first recruit. So it took, I ran into organized resistance all over the place, and finally, in the first part of July of 1950, I found a gay man who said, this is exactly the way I feel about it, too. Let's work on it together. Mm -hmm. So, as everybody knows, the first action that the gay movement, shall we say, took, two of us, was that this is the beginning of the Korean War. We went down onto the gay beach in Los Angeles and got 500 signatures on the Stockholm Peace Petition. That was our first action. Did you have a, a vision then of what it was going to be? I mean, did you think, well, I'm going to try this and maybe nothing will come of it? Or did you think someday this is going to grow into a really vital national movement and people are going to know that it was right? Well, as, as you probably know, I'm, I am at present involved in what is known as the Radical Fairy Movement. Right. I dreamt even then of the idea that there would be networks of sanctuaries, of places where we could come and out of which we would be able to move and organize and change things across the country. I didn't think that we would be able to flower as we have. I didn't yeah. expect that that fast. But I did a dream of maybe 50 or 60 networks of core groups around the country who would come out and make an appearance, pass out leaflets, zap, as you guys did in GAA in the 70s, and then disappear again. Right. Because I felt we were going to have to do that. Was there a lot of fear around the very subject? Uh, was it a time in the late 40s and 50s when people were worried that they might be on a list Oh yes, oh yes. There was a, indeed there was a great, a great feel there because you see, many of us began to recognize rather early that men who had gotten their training on the Red Squads, as they had been in the 30s and 40s, or let's say in the 20s, beginning with the Palmer raids, had moved on from the Red Squad to the Vice Squad, so that they had the same training and they were doing the same kind of thing. And people were aware of the fact, for instance, right in the start of the Civil War, they used to have these civil defense committees, block committees, and that any group of people who had more than four or five different people coming to their house, there would be some, some busybody on the block that was writing down all the license plate numbers. Right. And so, that yes, there was a fear. But by the same token, we decided very early that all we needed to do, we had learned a lot by this time from the progressive movements, that all we needed to do was to create a facade. Yeah. And then behind the facade, we could organize, which is what the Mattachine Foundation became. It became that facade, and it seemed to be built of solid 
marble, pink marble, of course, but nevertheless, <laughs> solid marble, and then behind that we would organize. And what was wonderful about it is the moment the people felt that that facade was in place and they were safe, they overcame their fear and they turned out in droves. Why? Because the idea of being together with 30 or 40 people talking about civil rights, talking about social problems, was so new, it was so heady, it was so wonderful. We were all using our body language and our gestures and we were safe and we were talking about things and we were just sharing ideas like crazy. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful, heady time. Harry, are you more involved in overt activity like being on the streets and being out there, or are you more involved in a self-knowledge of the homosexual? Oh no, uh, if, for instance in the 60s and 67 when you were passing out leaflets, not on Independence Day, we would have been late in May, KPFA for instance, or KPFK, which was the Pacifica radio station, the, the nonprofit radio station on, in the air, would have a thing called the Renaissance Pleasure Fair. And in 1967 there was a sexual freedom booth. And John and I were passing out gay lifestyle literature at the sexual freedom booth, dressed, if you please, as two wandering gentlemen from Nuremberg of the 14th century and selling our kaleidoscopes at the same time. So that we were actually dealing with the families came to buy our kaleidoscopes and they all got literature on the <laughs> gay is good freedom lifestyle. And so we were discussing what it meant to be gay and how wonderful it was to be a gay couple and, and so on. In 1967, at the Freedom Fair, we were probably the only two gays there at the moment, or the open gays, but then we had practice the year before when we went to form NACO in San Francisco of uh, spending time on Telegraph Avenue talking about the gay lifestyle to students of about oh, three or four hundred of them at a the time and on those open uh, cafes that they have along Telegraph Avenue. Right. Having just participated in the Freedom Day rally the afternoon before and been on a picket line and so on as open gay men. Do you have a minute message for young lesbians and gay men today, Harry? Some advice, maybe? Yes, I would. I would suggest, among other things, that we must begin to quit imitating the heteros as much as we do. And I think as far as the younger people are concerned, they've got a big step up on all of us because they haven't taken on as much of the frog skins that most of us have to wrap ourselves in in order to get through life that I've always said that we should tear off the ugly green frog skin and find the beautiful fairy prince underneath. And I hope all the young ones find the beautiful fairy prince tomorrow. Maybe our story didn't start at a mafia-run gay bar packed with drag queens, their purses bulging with bricks. Maybe they did not fire the opening shot glass or spark the revolution. Maybe. It was not New York City in 1969, but was actually a gay bar in Los Angeles two years earlier. When the police raided the Black Cat Tavern on New Year's Eve 1966, it was nothing new to the gay community in Silver Lake, California. But what was new was how that community decided to respond in a large, organized public protest on February 11, 1967. One of those organizers was Alexei Romanov, who spoke with me 50 years later about that historic day. So how did you get from 30, 35 people meeting in a closed bar in Hollywood to five, 600 people protesting? Word of mouth, people being sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired of being treated the way they were being treated. So what did you decide on? Did you say we're going to stand outside with signs? First of all, you couldn't stand in one place. You have to move. Otherwise, you can be arrested for loitering. 
if we had people who were giving us information about the legality of different things. We produced flyers that we passed out besides the signs. We didn't chant much. We did a little, but we mainly paraded around, and any one of our flyers that were handed out, if we saw it was dropped, we ran over and picked it up. What did the flyers say, do you recall? It told why we were there, the story. And February 11th? We showed up. I had already moved to Santa Monica at that time. So coming in with a group of my friends in the car, and I think there was two or three cars, so we were strangely quiet, very quiet. We were actually intimidated because we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we didn't know. I'm sure the black activists felt the same thing in Selma and in other places. And you had been seeing this very much in the media at the time. Yes, absolutely. Dogs, police batons, things like that. There wasn't like fluttery or anything. The gravity of it seemed to be clear. Yeah, because that out of that did come that we no longer were starting to say, just leave us alone. Just let us live our own lives. We won't bother you. What we were saying then, our Constitution guarantees us the right to be free people. And that's the first time that was ever said and was never said before that. Now, the Manishan Society did say that we had the right to keep our jobs in the government because that was during the McCarthy era. Yeah. But if you were in the Manishan Society, when you went to demonstrate, you had to wear a suit. And if you were a lesbian, you had to wear a dress or a skirt. Did you prepare yourself? Did you have kind of a, a strategy for things getting heated? Some of us had some training with the anti-war demonstrations about drop, cover your head, cover your vital areas, roll up into kind of a ball to protect yourself. Now, at that demonstration, there were supposed to be other demonstrations that we had arranged. We contacted other groups. We contacted a Latino group. We contacted a black group. We contacted the anti-war demonstrations. This is before the demonstration. On that same day, we had the thought that if we could have a number of demonstrations going on in the city that the police would be so pulled apart that they couldn't do that much damage to any one of us because their forces were so distributed out. Did they respond positively? Then? They did. They were supposed to have it. But the Latino and the black community didn't come off that day. But the anti-war group had a demonstration way larger than us over on Sunset Boulevard on the exact same day on that strip. And I think they had about uh, 3,000. I want to pause for a moment because you reached out to leaders of these various resistance movements. And even though some of them didn't actually organize protests that day, it sounds like they were receptive to what you were doing. No, they were divisive in their own community. It didn't involve us. Mm -hmm. We reached out to leaders and there were those who were saying, we don't want to be connected with those people. And evidently, either they couldn't get enough people to back what they were doing, 
or they just didn't want to do it. But they were going to. We had a promise they would do it, and they didn't come through. And that's not a bad thing, and it's not a good thing. It's the fear. It's a human situation. The stakes were so high for everybody. And you got to understand, we had a mental illness in those days, and we could be committed by our own families. They could just not like what we were doing, and they could put us in a sanitarium for many, many years. So on that day, you scheduled this. Presumably, you used the phone tree system again to get people to come out. Yeah. The day happens. Everybody's gotten word. Did everyone just show up and pick up a sign and start walking around? What happened? People were excited. They were fearful because the first time they're really being heard. Was there news there? The only people who covered that demonstration and most of the pictures from that demonstration that you see were done by the free press. They were the only ones that showed up. Did you let the media know ahead of time? Oh, they knew very well what was going to happen. Very well. They didn't want to cover it. Why do you think that they didn't want to cover it? Probably for the same thing that racism happens. If you're considered the lowest of the low, why should we cover it? How long did it last? To the evening. And how were the police? Very orderly, because they were being photographed. And we see the importance of that to this year. Yes, yes. Witnessing abuses of power is a powerful force to stop abuses of power. Yes, yeah. I'm all in favor of cameras. Were there just neighborhood people's local businesses involved watching? What kind of feedback did you get in the moment? Some people were annoyed. They couldn't walk down the street. It was so crowded. We had to keep moving. There was a laundromat next to the black cat that was in there. And there was a parking lot alongside that. And the line went around and around and down the streets, up the streets, all around. When I was with the police chief downtown, I pointed to the pictures because Roots of Equality had large blow-ups of the pictures of people carrying the signs. And I said, do you see anybody smiling? Any one of them? Not one because they were scared. But silence no more. So who was there? Who were the protesters? What kinds of people? People like me, everyday people, going to common jobs, doing common work, doing important work. Men, women? Men, women, like I said, 500 to 600 gay men, gay women, lesbians, and those who support us. So you had allies? Sure we did even some people from the other communities. And were there people of color, different ages? There were some. There wasn't that much then. I could see the risks would be even higher. Why do you think we don't hear much about this? Other things that were happening around the time was the next year, the patch on PCH had a protest in 1966 in San Francisco, Compton's Cafeteria, there was a protest. We tend to think everything started with Stonewall, but it didn't. Why do you think we don't know about this? The difference was there were demonstrations, and somehow a riot makes more news. And Stonewall was a riot. It wasn't a peaceful, organized demonstration. Those people were fed up. They had taken enough, and they weren't going to take any more. And it took some very brave, as we used to call them, 
which was derogatory in a way, drag queens. It took them to say, we're not going to take this anymore. And that was the riot that happened then. They turned the tables. It was an important thing. I never want to lessen the importance of Stonewall, but all of these steps, including the Manishan Society, are important because they were all footholds. Today they talk about on your shoulders. Well, it's in your steps. Do you think that this kind of buildup of we're not going to take it anymore, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, like you said, that started happening around this time, do you think that it was sort of spurred on by what was also happening around the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement? Absolutely, because everybody was, they were realizing that somehow the laws were illegitimate, that they weren't right from a moral standpoint. Laws are laws that states and the government makes, but they're not always right. Like a woman's right to choose, it's her right to choose. You can hate me all you want, but it stops at the edge of my nose. That's civil rights in a nutshell. Darn right. After the protests, what did you think you'd accomplish? I mean, were you aware how big this was? I didn't realize how big this was. What I did realize and was hoping for that we would accomplish something, that it wasn't just done and nothing came out of it, because that had happened before. I think afterwards, yes. Three years ago, I was on the Founders Float at CSW, the Pride Parade, and after that, I got to stand up on the main stage, and I looked down, and there had to be a thousand young faces looking back up at me. The first thing I said to them when I was speaking to them was, hello, family, because, you know, we have our family of blood, but we have our family of choice. And sometimes our family of choice are more gratifying to our needs. And I looked at all of these young people and I thought to myself, what can I say? Well, first of all, I let them know I care about them. Second of all, I told them, nobody has ever given us anything we haven't had to fight for. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And seeing those kids and those people go crazy down there, clapping and yelling. I realized I had touched maybe a thousand people that afternoon. And I'm proud of that. Although the organized protest, nearly two months after the police raid was important, it was a spontaneous march in response to a raid the following year that bears more comparisons to what was to happen at the Stonewall. My name is Lee, L-E-E, Glaze, G-L-A-Z-E, just like the donuts. So what happened on August 17th, 1968? There was a fight that broke out outside between so-called straight boys and us gay girls who wouldn't run. And one of my bartenders said, Lee, you got to turn up the lights. Is it the cops are in here in full? I said, what are you talking about? And there had to have been a dozen uniformed cops. They were in the damn bar. They were harassing my customers. They were going up to and asking them, you know, where they lived, what they did. I said, excuse me, you can't do that. The only thing they have to do is show you their identification. You have no legal right to ask them where they work, which they didn't. And I said, don't let them intimidate you, boys. I said, my God, there's some Long Beach police officers right over there with their girlfriends. What's the matter with you guys? The cops from Long Beach came up and talked to some of the guys. 
guys from L.A. And Cy was there, Joey was there, and she went up to this one guy and just slapped them across the mouth and said, you work on the side for us. You don't work for us anymore. So at any rate, they arrested two of my customers. One, Bill Hastings, who was later my partner at Ciro's, which is now the comedy store, and Troy's lover. I said, why are you taking these girls? And they said to Harbor Division, why? I said, we'll meet you there, boys. I said, girl, don't be afraid of it. I said, we're going to get flowers. Surely some green's got a flower shop around here somewhere. Let's greet him with flowers. He said, I got a flower shop. I said, bring them all down. So they brought down my huge bouquets of flowers, and there were so many. We pulled in. The cop at the debt looked at us and looked at us like so and was on the phone calling for reinforcements. And reinforcements arrived, and a lot of the kids took off. I would love to have one of the papers print that picture because those kids that are around me were the last of the batch. And to me, those kids are gay heroes because they really, really put themselves on the line. They really did. Somebody wrote that it was like a political rally because there I was and there they were. I was so proud of them. They were just backing me up like crazy. And I said, and don't you dare let them intimidate you. And they were tossing flowers. I was tossing flower at this one cop. One of those hits me and I'm going to get you with bodily abuse. And I said, oh, get real. The cops were beside themselves because, as I say, it had never happened before. Well, there's been a lot of demonstrations, but not quite like that. That one uh, really made history when you get right down to it. Lee's flower power protest lands him on the cover of every gay publication. He is a national gay hero, but the local police backlash proved to be too much for the patch. We knew we were going to close because we were bailing people out of jail. I told my customers, I said, anybody that gets a tire slashed, we'll buy you tires. We'll provide you attorney, bail out. No. In other words, I felt if they're going to stick it for me, I'm going to stick it for them. I know damn good well I bought a lot of tires that didn't need it. I just said, nevertheless, bring me a bill. Lee is not done opening doors for his queer brothers and sisters. So at any rate, we closed, and then Bill had suggested that we come up to see Dorothy Metcalf, who was managing Ciro's. I asked Dorothy, I said, well, what am I going to take to get in? And she said, oh, $1,500 deposit. And I said, well, that's what I want you to talk to you about. I happen to sue, not a son team, not a peso. You want to rent Ciro's and you don't have any money. I said, that's right. If you lend me $5,000, I'll pay you back in a week or two, and then we'll go from there. And that's what she did. And I paid her back. My dear, it was the first gay dance bar in all of Hollywood. You'd have thought that they had struck oil. I mean, we had queens coming on both ends. And my apartment was the entire center section of that building that's right next door. And it was maddening. I mean, my God, the money was coming in like, I mean, it was just pouring in. And I said, well, what are we going to do with this money? I'm not declaring it. I said, so I was technically on unemployment. And I thought it would never end, but then Scott asked me, he says, how are you doing it, Lee? I got a mailing list. He said, how many people are on it? I said, I don't know, five, six, seven thousand names? I'd like to borrow it. And I said, that's fine. I said, you pay for the postage and we'll ship them out. Well, we bought the postage, put them on, and I gave him the stacks of my mailing So he had my mailing list. And he opened Studio One. We actually looked at a few locations. He said, what about this? And that had been owned by Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, the factory. And I looked at I said, oh my God. I said, Scott, you've got to take this. He said, well, you got rooms that are not going to be any good. I said, honey, you've got the bar. You've got the dancing. Down below, you've got a theater. I said, you can have shows. You can have dancing. You can have this, that, and the other. Take the place. So he did. And I opened my own competition. And we closed because the Ciro's 
was such a big nut to crack. We paid $5,000 a week. So you're talking $15,000 a month to guarantee to come in on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. A lot of money. Lee's career as a bar owner had come to a close, but he continued to be a champion for gay rights. In 2011, the Amazing Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence bestowed upon Lee Glaze one of their highest honors, sainthood. I am now St. Leona Flower Power. The courage shown by Lee Glaze and the patrons of the patch inspired uprisings all around the country, including the Stonewall Inn a year later. The blonde darling left his body on November 22, 2013. But Lee Glaze's light still shines every time you see a queer couple holding hands, dancing together, or getting married. But if you're going to give credit where credit is due, look no further than the Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which occurred in August 1966, San Francisco. But Stonewall gets the notoriety and credit because of geography and happenstance. It is Stonewall everyone remembers. Primarily because the Village Voice newspaper was a few doors down from the bar. And on that night, an intern named Lucian K. Truscott IV was working late and walked home past the scene outside the Stonewall Inn. Besides covering what happened, he also posed all the famous photos, because the only photographer he could wrangle was in a hurry to get home. And according to Eric Margus, author of Making Gay History, The popular account of Stonewall is that a bunch of drag queens fought back against police repression on the night of June 27, 1969, there was a riot, and out of that riot grew the gay rights movement. The Stonewall was not the drag queen bar. That was the Washington Square bar, which was somewhere else, and that there were very few drag queens at Stonewall the night of the riot. When I started working on this book, I assumed the gay rights movement began in 1969 and was shocked to learn. In fact, the gay rights movement began, obviously, years before, in 1950. And following the riot, there was a meeting called by the Manishing Society and the Daughters of Belitis. The Manishing Society of New York dates back to Los Angeles in 1950. The Daughters of Belitis dates back to 1955 in San Francisco. So it was out of these two organizations that the new gay rights movement was born. But it, it couldn't have been born, or at least it couldn't have progressed in the way it did with the founding of the Gay Liberation Front, an organization that spread across the country like Queer Nation did in the late 80s and early 90s. The movement could not have developed in that way if there hadn't been a pretty solid foundation created by these earlier organizations. So... The myth of this single event leading to a movement is really a myth. And the story that it was led by drag queens who were indeed participants in this riot, but that it was led by and that it was all drag queens is also a myth, which is not to discount the role of men who dressed as women or women who were butch or any of the other people who were involved. This is what happened, and it's important to know what happened because the myth is not nearly as interesting or as rich as the story of what actually happened at Stonewall that night and in the nights that followed in June of 1969. We'll be back after this quick break. One magazine coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the early 1950s, Los Angeles became the center of a burgeoning gay community. On October 15, 1952, two years after Harry Hay co-founded the Mattachine Society, a discussion group including a number of members started the first gay publication with a national circulation, one magazine. Their purpose was to establish a magazine dealing primarily with homosexuality from the scientific, historical, and critical point of view. The first issue was published in January 1953 and was sold openly on the streets of Los Angeles. It sported a sophisticated look with bold graphics done by professional typesetters and designers. Most subscribers paid extra to have it delivered in an unmarked wrapper. 
but the October 1954 edition caught the eye of the LA Postmaster, who seized it and refused to mail it. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. It's read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Hello, I'm Jim Forat, and I've been rabble-rousing since the early 60s as an artist, as a political organizer, and I have been listening to IMRU Radio Magazine almost from the beginning, in 1974, and I'm one of the few people that's willing to say that I don't celebrate the Stonewall Inn at all. It is a symbol to me of our oppression. Before 1969, we were grateful to have these mafia-run places because they were the only places that were safe to meet. Otherwise, we were left to the bushes or chance encounters of that kind. But they were very much a symbol to me of how we were oppressed and organized crime being a partner in that. What happened that night happened in the street, which fundamentally changed the lives of gay and lesbian people, regardless of what they call themselves or cultures. But across the world, people know about Stonewall, but it's in the streets. That spark that was a spark of rebellion, a spark of liberation, did not happen inside that bar. And people like David Carter, who wrote uh, the book Stonewall Riots, celebrates, it depoliticizes in a very interesting way, the radical aspects of what happened in the street that night. So I've been to Stonewall maybe three times since then. If someone really is having an event that they really want me to be at, and I love them very much, I will go for maybe five or ten minutes. But it's not something that I celebrate. It's owned by the same family that owned it in 1969. At the time, I was working at CBS, Columbia Records. I was assistant to Clive Davis, and I did a lot of their marketing. You know, Clive has come out, and everyone knows, after being married and having two kids for X amount of years, his wife died, he came out. I never knew that Clive was gay, and people always assumed that I got the job because I was this cute blonde Twinkie, but no, (laughs) I just want to put on the record, never knew that until one night I discovered him in the balcony of Studio 54 in a very compromising position, which then told me that in fact he was a gay man, but he was very discreet about it when I worked at Columbia Records. So I was working there, it's a Friday night, I was working late, and I was coming home, and Christopher Street starts at Greenwich Avenue, and the subway station lets you out at Greenwich Avenue and 6th Avenue. So I was walking along Greenwich Avenue, and I turned the corner on Christopher Street, and I noticed a single cop's car parked in front of the Stonewall, and a couple, may I emphasize, a couple of people outside of the bar. It was 10.30 at night. So like any good radical of the 60s, you see a cop's car in front of a place, 10.30 at night, a couple of people in front. I walked down, and as I got close to the door to the bar, it opened. Now, I knew this bar. It was not a bar that I went to. I went to other bars in the neighborhood, unlike the David Carter book, saying that there weren't. There were. There was a great dance bar, for example. It's called the Cherry Lane. And the door opened, and out came what at the time was called a passing woman, meaning a female who was very masculine in her identity and dressed like a man and carried herself like a man. There were pejorative terms like bull dagger, bull dyke that would be used to describe her, but the sort of nicer word was passing woman, meaning that she passed as a man. And she was coming out and she was handcuffed and she was being big and burly. 
everyone had a lot of gender expression that night, you know. And they put her in the police car in handcuffs, and they went back inside. And I, I was sort of stunned. And I stood there, and it was a Saturday night. I mean, people started coming, you know, down the street to see what was going on. She started, she's big enough to rock the police car, you know, inside. And lo and behold, the cop had not locked the door on the other side, and it popped open, much to her surprise, by the way. And so she got out, she raised her arms, and she, she was big and burly, but she had women's wrists, and she slipped out of those handcuffs because they were not done that tightly. And by now, there might have been 40 people, and a big cheer went up. And that, to me, is the moment that gay rebellion took place, that moment that was spontaneous, that no one would, I mean, no political person would have planned this event at that place, okay? And something happened, and it changed forever, I believe, how we see ourselves and how we had the courage to come out. Now, what's interesting is right next door was the Mattachine Society, literally in the building next door. And the Mattachine had become a very different kind of political organization than it was when Harry Hay and the seven members founded it in Los Angeles. Anyway, that moment happens, and the cop comes out again and looks at the crowd who are now in full yelling, you know, and cheering, and cheering her in particular. Went back inside and closed the door. And from what I know from people that were inside, there were two cops. That was the moment when they called for reinforcements. Now, the David Carter book starts at midnight. And the two voices of authority in that book are the police officer who was overall in charge and a straight reporter named Howard Smith. Howard Smith was one of my best friends. I will say to you right here, I do not believe that Howard was inside the Stonewall. But Howard, being a certain kind of reporter, could confabulate in a very beautiful way a story. And so those are the two voices that David Carter uses to say what went on. The police officer has yet to ever admit that there was a payoff going on. He would not say that the cops took money. And this was well known. I mean, this was not an unusual event to happen at a gay bar, usually early in the evening, for the cops to come and get their weekly or monthly or whatever the time circuit was. I don't know what the problem was. I don't know what the problem was inside. But they didn't get their pay according to what they thought they should be getting, and there was a, they were leaning. And the patrons were used to this, and, and some of the more, how shall we say, well, some of the, the queens, and there weren't a lot of queens led into the Stonewall. You have to understand, the Stonewall was set up for a very specific clientele. It's a place where closeted, sometimes married men would go to meet young men, usually hustlers, or chicken was the word that was used for very young men. They didn't let a whole lot of queens in. They didn't let a whole lot of people of color in. There was a very strong door person there. Always was this huge Italian man who would let you in and not let you in. And they called for reinforcements. Three more police cars came. Now, you see a lot of pictures of paddy wagons with queens getting into the paddy wagon. They are not from that night. There was very little documentation of what actually happened that night. So people scrambled, and media scrambled to figure out. Remember, the Village Voice was on the corner. And this is never talked about. But I was very good friends with the Village Voice people because in the 60s, I was a cultural person. 
so I knew Howard and I knew all the Village Voice people. They made up the story of Judy Garland because they couldn't figure out why these gay people were so upset in the street. Now, I'm a Judy Garland fan. I'm old enough to have seen Judy Garland. I tell people I sang with Judy Garland, and I did, but I was one of like the 1,200 gay men that were in the Carnegie Hall when she recorded Judy at Carnegie, and at one point she has us all sing together. So I'm not an anti-Judy Garland person at all, and I knew Liza really well when she was young. We were both in the theater. But no, Stonewall had nothing to do with Judy Garland's death. Around the corner is a bar called Julius's, which is still there. And that's where the men that might have been mourning Judy's, uh, she had her funeral that day, might have been there drinking their tears away, but not the Stonewall. So I just want to get that out of the way. No, that's a myth, not true. Nothing wrong with Judy, but she had nothing to do with what happened that night. Trust me, no one was talking about Judy in front of the Stonewall or inside the Stonewall. Now, it's a very small place. If you were to put all the people that say they were in there dancing on the tables, <sighs> the reason I'm saying some of these things to you, Steve, is that I think the truth is much more interesting than the myth. What we were able to do as a community that had never made any noise, who had never stood up for themselves, was not allowed in any political organization unless we were closeted. What happened that night freed us to do all those things. Yes, people did things before Stonewall. And yes, if you're holding on to it, are entitled to that memory. And I think that it all built the kind of sensibility for what happened to Stonewall. Why does Stonewall get the attention? Because it was in New York City, the media capital of the world. New York City is organized. It's physically very different than LA or San Francisco. I don't have the words to tell you how the exuberance was in the air, the, the lack of fear was in the air, you know, the sort of group crowd mentality. And my life is full of happenstance. People say, I don't believe you were there. Well, I was there, and why was I there? I can only say happenstance, you know? I'm Jerry Fair, and I'm 80 years old. I started a gay lifestyle in 1948, when I was around 39 or 40. At that time, if there was even a suspicion that you were gay, that you were a lesbian, you were fired from your job, and you were in such a position of disgrace that you slunk out without saying goodbye even to the people that liked you and you liked, never even bothered to clean your desk. You just disappeared. Today, I live in a senior citizen apartment building. What's different now is that I can be free I have a daughter who's a senior citizen and my son is 58. They know about my homosexuality. My three grandchildren in the 30s know about their grandmother. I have a great granddaughter who at the age of 10 learned that Grandma Jerry was a lesbian and she thought that was most interesting. And yet I still don't have the personal courage to not care if these yentas in the building know that Jerry's a lesbian. If we are demanding our history be respected, then we need to respect it ourselves. Or as Theodore Roosevelt once said, the more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future.
But one thing that's not in dispute. In 1974, with this revolution in its infancy, KPFK created a gay radio program that would be the voice of a disenfranchised community for the next five decades. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm Greg Gordon for IMRU. I'm, and I'm gay. And so am I. Since the dawn of creation, one eternal question has been asked down through the ages. A question which has been known to strike fear into the hearts and minds of decent people everywhere. A question so overwhelming in its challenge to human identity that some people have been driven to the brink of despair whenever such a question has been asked of them. Are you ready to accept the challenge? Do you dare to confront the question of the ages? I am... Are you? In 1974, KPFK, Tuesday nights at 11 was, as I recall, their sex hour. The first Tuesday of the month was Lesbian Sisters. The third Tuesday of the month was a program for gay men called Gay at Heart, hosted by a guy who went by the name of Morning Glory. His claim to fame, from what I understand, was that he had then L.A. County Supervisor Ed Edelman on the program during the oil crisis, and he asked Edelman if that was going to impact the availability of KY lubricant. Anyway, that probably would give you some idea of the nature of that program. Anyway, Morning Glory decided to leave town. He was moving to Georgia to be with his partner. KPFK went to the Gay Community Services Center, which is what it was called at the time, near downtown L.A., put up flyers looking for a person or persons to take over for that third Tuesday of the month gay men's program time slot. I was uh, facilitating rap groups at the time, and a guy by the name of Enric Morello and Colin McQueen and I, we volunteered basically to, to come in, and our first program was in August of 1974, it was a live show, and I think the subject was myths about gay men. And it was open phones, and we didn't take over the name Gay at Heart. The first name I can remember of the collective was the Great Gay Radio Conspiracy, and eventually we came upon IMRU. I remember driving to our first program trying to figure out whether I was going to use my real name on the air or not. And keep in mind, this was August of 74. And I decided what the heck, and I did. And I had never had a better understanding of what the feeling of being liberated felt like until I was driving home from that broadcast because I felt so free. Um, we did our first production feature, in February of 1975, the station had a theme of that month, which was romance. And so our program was Gay Romance, Some Alternatives for the 70s. And we divided it into monogamous relationships, open relationships, and being single, and the proponents for each of those. And we mixed with music, and it was had pre-recorded, yeah, those were heydays, I guess. 
I've been at this for a long time. I I shudder to think about that from time to time, but I've explained to people, like my brother, for example, expressed disappointment in me because he doesn't feel like I achieved the potential that I could have achieved with my life professionally. And I've tried to explain to him that I really, it may sound corny, but I've, I felt this as sort of a calling. Just turn your radio on. from Lesbian Sisters. And this is Greg Gordon from the Gay Radio Collective. Lesbian Sisters, providing programming specifically geared to lesbian women, airs on the first Tuesday of each month at 10 p.m. And the Gay Radio Collective presents IMRU on all other Tuesday nights at 10. Lesbian Sisters and IMRU will continue to bring you lively discussions, music, poetry, comedy sketches, and the news of the gay community. Now, Tuesday nights at 10 on listener-supported radio for all of Southern California, KPFK 90.7 FM. Please join us. At first, it was an all-boys club, but just a few months later, they found their first lesbian, looking no further than the KPFK lobby. This is Lucia Chappelle for IMRU. I'm talking to... Frank really one of the organizers of this demonstration. Frank, how many people do you think are here? We have no idea, but it's larger than anything we've ever done in Los Angeles before, including the Christopher Street West Parades. It's unbelievable. I'm Lucia Chappelle, and I got involved with IMRU sometime early in 75. I was the first woman in the Gay Radio Collective. I was working at KPFK. I was on staff. And I was always running into the guys who were doing IMRU, and we'd chat. I was, switchboard was one of my jobs, so I would sit in the lobby, and they'd talk to me, and they kept badgering me about getting involved in the collective, and I kept going, oh. But um, I finally did it, and it wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> and what can I say? Uh, a world of memories and madness and gonzo queer journalism started then. Tell me about your work on IMRU. Some of my interviews that I remember doing, I remember um, Reverend Elder Frida Smith from Sacramento and the Reverend Jim Sammeyer from Los Angeles, Bob Sirico when he was the executive director at the center, Susan McGreevy several times, particularly on the Norton Sound case, the uh, lesbians who were discharged from the Navy. Oh, and the, the gay pride parades. My goodness, pride parades when you actually got chased by police at the end of the parade and the people with the microphones are all running behind the parade trying not to be caught by the police. Uh, and the gay days. I think the first gay day is probably one of my finest memories of all. It was remarkable. And I remember the phone calls. Again, I, when I wasn't on air, I was on the switchboard. And I remember this woman calling up who said, I just had to call today. She said, I'm 80 years old, and I'm a lesbian, and I've never told anyone that before, but I wanted to tell you that today. And she hung up. And I was just, like, sitting there at the switchboard. I didn't know. I, I started to cry. I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then at the end of the day, when people started calling up and we opened the phones... I remember this one guy saying, KPFK has been the giver of light today. I just, I never knew. I never knew. I never knew. 
That's the kind of radio it was. It was hard, you know? It was no joke. It was no joke. We didn't have counseling services and a million organizations and all that. So, Steve, we would spend about an hour at the station after the show was over counseling people who called up. Yes, we were like suicide prevention counselors for an hour after the show because there was no hotline. Those things didn't exist yet. The center was just getting started. What story are you proudest of? The first March on Washington, 79, because it wasn't just any one interview. It was a million different interviews. It was all the interviews leading up to it, just all the madness that went on beforehand, just the whole gestalt of that experience that was months long. The guys that did the gay show at the Washington Pacifica station, WPFW, Bill Bogan and his buddies pulled it together. Bill also had an NPR connection. So he got, um, oh gosh, what was that? Moira Rankin was one of our co-anchors and he set up a whole cooperation with NPR to get the stuff on the air. And then we brought everybody that was doing LGBT shows from all the different stations around the country, we all crashed at Bill's house. <laughs> we were all sleeping on the floor and putting together this broadcast. I think maybe there were about 20 of us all together, five or six people from KPFA, several from WBAI in New York, the whole gang from Washington, and we put it together. We put it together. And of course, we had all been covering it Again, leading up to it and sharing our tapes when you had to send cassettes by mail to share tapes. Yes, indeed, we did. So it all grew. Now, that first year, we actually had a line, a phone line that went from the Capitol Mall into NPR to upload the stuff as it was happening. The second march on Washington, we didn't have that kind of connection. We were recording the march and sending somebody on a bicycle with the reel-to-reel tape to NPR to upload it. <laughs> but we did it. But we did it. Did you ever think that I or you would be on the air for 40 years? <laughs> I didn't think I'd be around for 40 years. <laughs> we're everywhere, part of everything. In every time, come and make our world your home. Don't be alone. If you're down, feeling blue, tell you what to do. Just reach out and say, I am all you. I am all you. Today, we often gloss over the difficulties post-Stonewall, pre-AIDS. It was a time when the differences between gay men and lesbians sometimes overshadowed the shared battle. I'm Eric Marcus. There has been infighting in the gay rights movement ever since the beginning between the men who thought that the effeminate men shouldn't be allowed in or the effeminate men who thought that the butch men were just putting on an act, between the men and women, the women who were very upset with the men for, as one woman put it, their bathroom habits because the men were getting arrested in the bathrooms having sex with each other. There was never a moment when this was a movement that was cohesive and without difficulties, without argument. This is an incredibly diverse movement, and I think one of the strengths of it 
is that it is diverse. Today, there are organizations to satisfy almost everyone. I hear complaints from people saying, the human rights campaign does not represent my views. Why do they speak for the gay community? Well, the human rights campaign speaks for a large segment of the gay and lesbian population in America. They speak for their constituents, for their members. If you're not happy with HRC, join Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, or your local chapter of GLSEN, or PFLAG, or Gay Men's Leather Group, or whatever it is you're interested in, you can find today. But there's no one group that will speak for all of us, and there's no one group that should. I see that as a strength. The conflict is natural. We come from such diverse backgrounds. Why would we all think in one way? I remember in the 1970s when San Francisco's Castro Street was at its peak. All gay men had to wear, or they, they were supposed to wear, at least I got those are the instructions I got in the mail, Lacoste shirts, if not Lacoste shirts, then final shirts, jeans, preferably tight, work boots. He had to have a mustache. And men who had brown hair and chest hair were most esteemed. Now you can't have anybody here and you should have blonde hair and be blue-eyed and young, preferably. It's not nearly as rigid now as it was then. We're a happily diverse group and anyone who expresses displeasure or disappointment needs to look at the history to see that we have thrived in our diversity and that will never change. History never looks like history when you're living through it. Events today may be pivotal in the chronicles that are written tomorrow, but one thing is certain. Anything we do now is constructed on the foundation laid down by the gay men and lesbians who came before us. It's a cliché that those who ignore history are bound to repeat it. It is also true. But before we can learn from gay and lesbian history, we must just learn. I think this is a subject that should be taught, uh, that should be introduced to young people, just as we teach about the black civil rights movement, as we talk about the women's movement in history classes. It's still not easy to be a gay and lesbian person in America today. And I think it's very important for all gay and lesbian people to know about this history because they can draw inspiration from it. Doogie Howser, Lance Bass, Brokeback, Superman, Rufus does Judy at Carnegie Hall. Barry Craig, Vice Squad, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Dumbledore, Nutmeg State, Obama wins, so does Pompeii. Forty years ago, new and extravera through a shoulder and became a moving and I followed you. Next time, IMRU brings you, Pride Out Loud, Episode 2, Rise of a Hero. Thanks for listening.